This episode was brought to you by our friends over at 405 Brewing, Norman's first brewery, where they are creatively brewing liquid art to share with the community. So if you're ever in my neck of the woods, be sure to check them out, and you can find out more information about their taproom hours on their website, 405brewing.com. Welcome to the 59th episode of the Real Life Diabetes Podcast with CNN Heroes Award recipient, Maria Rose Belding. If you're new to the show, my name is Amber Kluwer, and I'm the host and also co-founder of the Diabetes Daily Grind blog. After a tip from my sister and a little friendly stalking, I'm thrilled to interview Maria Rose, co-founder and executive director of The Means Database, which is a nonprofit tech company working to move food to those in need in 49 U.S. states and D.C. Means, which Maria Rose has been working on since the age of 14, yeah, age 14, has been responsible for the recovery of more than 2 million pounds of food since 2015. She has won countless awards, but most recently was listed as the top 10 CNN hero of the year, becoming the youngest woman ever to claim that honor at age 23. Maria Rose is a senior at American University, studying public health on the pre-med track with minors in power napping, <laughs> caffeine studies, and almost having her pump confiscated mid-bolus by professors who thought she was texting in class. It is clear from her unique bio, this woman is on the fast track to success. And in this episode, she shares how type 1 diabetes is intertwined in every facet of her life, but it doesn't stop her from filling her dreams. But as we know, before we get started, I have to share a few announcements. And there are a couple of fun ones on this one. So I'm really excited for this first announcement. After a lot of deliberation and stepping down from a full-time career, I'm packing up my Subaru and taking the show on the road. My first stop, Scottsdale, Arizona. My car will be filled with probably too many shoes, my podcast gear with the intent to meet fellow people living the good life with diabetes along the the way. I will announce my destination on all social media platforms and hope you will join me for happy hour, a low-carb meal, or as my guest on the podcast. My calendar is wide open, so hit me up if you want the Real Life Diabetes Podcast visit your neck of the woods. Hmm, love to meet you. Announcement number two. <sighs> this one's a personal one. Yesterday was my 36th anniversary, and I gotta tell you, life is good. I celebrated with some garlic green beans from Whole Foods and a really large glass of Chardonnay. No worries. And I want to thank the Diabetes Forecast magazine for recently listing the Real Life Diabetes podcast as one of their top picks. Man, What an honor to be listed in such a reputable publication. If you're not familiar with that magazine, check it out. It goes all over the country and is put out, I believe, by the American Diabetes Association. So yeah, pick it up, whether you subscribe or if you pick it up in your doctor's office. Take a look. We're really proud to be listed. And thank you. And please continue to love, like, and share all things on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Every single comment helps, and it really does fuel my desire to keep doing this. It's those little comments that really, really make a difference in my life. You can also leave me an iTunes review or stay up to date by signing up for the newsletter. I'm going to be, do a better job of putting out a monthly newsletter, which will also include future podcast guests and um, where I'll be on the road. So stay up to date. And don't forget to click on the Amazon banner on the right side of the Diabetes Daily Grind website before shopping. They are kind enough to throw a little change my way and keep the episodes coming and god knows i could really use it right now so don't forget to do that before you all your shopping uh well i've rambled enough and i'm sure you're ready to get started so i really hope you enjoy this episode with maria rose belding maria are you there yes i am all right listeners this is the newest guest, this is Maria Rose Felding, and I want to start by sharing a little bit of history um, before we really get started with uh, Maria Rose. Um, 
my sister a few months ago, God, it can't have been that long, five or six weeks ago, sent me a text message and said, oh my gosh, I'm watching the CNN Heroes Awards, and I swear this young lady has a Dexcom on her arm. And so I was like, okay, whatever, you know, and I appreciate my family always sending stuff like that. Um, and so I looked her up, and I was like, oh, my gosh, she does. And so I stalked Maria on Twitter, and she was kind enough to um, answer my message, and, and here we are. So, Maria Rose, tell us a little bit about yourself in this award. All right. So my name is Maria Rose Belding, and I am the co-founder and executive director of the Names Database. We are a nonprofit tech company that connects grocery stores and restaurants and caterers and other folks with extra food to soup kitchens and homeless shelters and food pantries and houses of worship feeding the hungry in all 50 U.S. states, D.C., and Canada. Pretty impressive. Thank you. Thank you. We've created this platform, this online app that allows (laughs) the retailers to just post it. They just say, here's where, where I am, here's what I've got, here's what I need to gone by. And our system automatically texts and or emails all of the charities nearby that say, hey, I need this kind of thing. And using the system, we've been able to help find new homes for just over 2 million pounds of food in the last three years. Okay, I mean, I, I, I mean I, I'm, I'm speechless um, because, as you said in your speech, and I'll be sure to include it in the show notes, there's definitely a need, and we have so much excess. This is just a... It's a no-brainer, you know, and that it was someone like you who was at age 14 you know, started started this process. It really is simple. Actually, executing the program is, is much more complicated. <laughs> the thing is hunger. The things that make people hungry are very, very complicated. They are, it's poverty, it's domestic violence, it's substance abuse, it's lack of education, it's systemic racism. Mm-hmm. It's very, very complicated. Yeah. But well, the actual hunger itself, we have the food already. Right. It's just a matter of con- connecting the two. And one of the things when I spoke to you originally um, that really impressed me was when you talked about, and I, I'm asking you to please share a little bit more about when you volunteered as a kid with your family in the, in, in the food pantries, and what you saw there was people with chronic disease, diabetes and things like that. Like, tell me a little bit more about that experience. I spent a lot of time in the food pantry growing up, and it became pretty clear to me, even at 12 and 13, I would interact with or hear about clients that we had that had type 2 diabetes. And I would hear their A1Cs, and it would be 11, 12. Yeah. And I would always think, you guys still have pancreases. <laughs> like, how are, how are your blood sugars this bad? Right. And I thought it was just that, oh, they're just like, they're really not trying. <laughs> like, their body does have this for them. And they're re- like, how hard do you have to not be trying? <laughs> As I thought about it and figured it out, it wasn't for the most part that they didn't care about their blood sugars, but that they didn't want to be healthier. <laughs> it was the only food they could access was frequently cheap and high high carbohydrate with simple carbs. Yeah. Not a lot of fresh fruits or vegetables. If your options are eat stuff that's pretty bad for you or eat nothing at all, you're pretty much always going to pick the former. Right. Yeah. And, you know, just, I mean, I am thankful that I've never been on the receiving end of a food pantry. But if you are already there, you're, you're desperate. And yeah, people don't come to food pantries unless they need to. This idea that people who come to our agencies are freeloading or right. they just don't want to work. Actually, the majority of people who get food from food pantries are employed. And number two, it's not, no matter how hard we try as the pantries and as the emergency food space, to be a place that is non-judgmental and accepting and that provides dignity and pride. As much as right. you try for that, even the concept of asking someone for food is really hard to do. Right. 
So very, very few people come to our agencies unless they really need to be there. Right. You know, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, you know, when it comes to statistics, um, which pocket of the United States or which states are getting the most out of this? I mean, because if people in Oklahoma aren't buying into it in the end of being the producer, you know, how do we get them more on board? Like, what's the best platform for me to help here locally? When you, uh, when you say buying into this, you mean? Yeah, it's like how, you know, yeah, participating. Okay, so we are pretty much all over the place, but our biggest partnerships are in D.C. and Philadelphia and then Rhode Island. Hmm. But we also see tens of thousands of pounds of food move in California and Missouri and all all sorts of other places all over the map. The best thing you can do is go to meansdatabase.org. It is completely free to use, whether you are donating food or you are going to be on the receiving end. And all you have to do to qualify as a recipient is be a legal nonprofit or partnered or part of a house of worship. So if you're right out of a church or a mosque or a synagogue and you're feeding people for free, you're not charging them, then you're welcome to get food from us. Okay, well, let me ask you this on the other end because... Oklahoma is known, we have a number of uh, tribes here, uh, Native American tribes, and one in particular just comes to mind, if they wanted to donate food, are they eligible to do so? Yes. Okay. Hmm. Wheels are turning. Wheels are turning. And, you know, going back to, you know, talking about the Type 2 community coming through that line, you know, in the dream world that I've always lived in, you know, if, you, if there wasn't a way to combine some efforts, so when they come in to get their food, maybe there's a dietitian on staff or someone there to talk about the food. There are um, people that do that. There are food banks, uh, food banks, which are usually larger, thin food pantries, and then also some food pantries and shelters that are larger will actually have a dietitian on staff. That's great. And they'll have programs to even screen for diabetes in oh, a wow. food pantry. And, you know, here in Oklahoma City, I've been a part of uh, the Oklahoma County Health Department has a pre-diabetes. And, you know, they do the pre- – if you qualify, unfortunately, and you're pre-diabetic, then they have a series – like I think it's an eight-week class, maybe 12-week. But they want to keep you from getting there. So maybe that's an option, too, for me to combine some efforts. Um, yeah, to bring all those people together. Ish. Anyhow, okay, moving on. So – Maria Rose, you are 23 years old. Yes, I am. <laughs> You've accomplished a lot. And am I correct in your pre-med? I am pre-med, yes. What is going to be your area of focus? Do you know? I want to be an emergency medicine physician. Mm. It's a beautiful combination of crisis medicine, critical care, which I love, <laughs> psychiatric emergency care, which I love, and disproportionately working with vulnerable populations, which I love. <laughs> it's like the beautiful, it's the best kind of, it's the center of my personal Venn diagram of what I'm good at <laughs> and what I'm passionate about. It's good that you can find that at an early age because I know a lot of people wander through life finding something worthy, you know? Um, I've been very blessed that I've been passionate about everything I've done or I wouldn't do it. And I definitely feel like you're a similar soul. Yeah. For sure. For sure. I mean, I'm, I'm so excited. And it is very strange to be thinking about technically I'm going to retire when I'm like 23, possibly 24. If <laughs> <laughs> so I get into medical school on the first try, it is going to be very weird to think that I will have technically retired at that age. <laughs> but I'll just be getting started. What do your parents think about all this? My parents, my parents are proud of me. My parents are very, very supportive. They're also such Iowans about it. <laughs> like, yeah, explain that what that means. My parents are like, oh, you know, text them that, oh, this thing happened, or, oh, you know, this is what's going on with me. So they'll be like, great, is your apartment clean? <laughs> great, how are you great? Like, my parents very much are not like the parents of a lot of kids I've met where they're living through my success. Right. 
and there's a lot of pressure on me to uphold that success so that it makes them look good, that's not my parents at all. That's that's good. Well, let me ask, okay, so getting into your diabetes life, last time uh, we chatted, you were trying to get on the G6, but you were still on the G4. What, where are we at with that? So I am still using Medtronic Pump, and I am on a G4. Apparently, my insurance will pay for a G6, G6 starting February 4th. Wow, isn't that weird? How, yeah. yeah, and, like, I had two surgeries in the last month. Or last, not the last month. not been that bad. The last six months. And... It's been so frustrating because I've had to pull my desk come out in order to take Tylenol. Oh, yeah. So it's in shoes between being essentially, I was already on maximum and said, like, shoes between being on opiates <laughs> and being able to have a sensor in or be on maximum dose Tylenol but have no idea what your blood sugar is doing and just do finger checks. 10 times a day. Frustrating as hell. Yeah, it is. It's really frustrating. Like, I don't have it in right now because I'm just getting over a cold. And I was taking Dayquil and NyQuil, and that has acetaminophen in it, which is very helpful when you have a cold. But <laughs> also, my blood sugars were a trash fire. <laughs> I got to stay huge with the listeners. So, Marie and I have been trying to record this podcast for weeks now, and she was sick. I was sick. We were both sick at one point, and today is like the first day that both of us have really had a voice back. So, um, yeah, so I'm happy that we were able to, but I have to say, because I was on the G5 for about a year, and then I became a Dexcom warrior and went to the G6, went back to the G5 because I couldn't afford the G6, and um, thankfully, I'm not going to get into the details, I'm back on the G6, and I've had the flu, and the fact that I could go into the pharmacy and get NyQuil and all the other things that last year at this time I couldn't, mm-hmm. it, made, it, it made my um, recovery ten times faster in my mind, and for the first time ever having, I've had the flu a couple of times in my whole life, and I'm 43, is I had a CGM to where I could watch my blood sugar, and to see, I couldn't eat for two days and my blood sugar would not go below 270. That's with me giving insulin just left and right. And Yep. <laughs> Been there. It's crazy. And it was really eye-opening for me to realize how hard my body's fighting. Um, yeah. I mean, so I what, even, this morning I woke up, and if I had had a sensor in, I wouldn't have, I would have known this earlier. My, you know how sometimes when you sleep and you roll over and you pull your pump side out, you don't realize you've done it? I've heard this happens, yeah. Yes. So I did that, apparently, and I woke up at 5 a.m., and I was, like, 5.50, which is the highest I've been in a long time. I'm not sure the last time I was that high. But, like, I woke up because I felt, like, absolute garbage. Yeah. So I got up and bullish, and then at 9 a.m., I was 58. (laughs) But, like, if I had, because of course I was, but if... If I had a sensor, if I could have had my sensor in and been taking the NyQuil, I would have known. Yeah. It would have been buzzing at me. It would have woken me up or woken my roommate up, you know, at 11 p.m. when I was only maybe 2.50. And then I would have been like, wow, my sight is no longer in. Yeah. Right. I should fix that. Well, and let me I mean, so for people living with this disease, you get it. You know, going from 5.50 to 58... In four hours. In four hours? I mean, you talk about, and for the people that are listening that do not have type 1 diabetes, that is like you have ran four marathons while nauseous. Uh, You've got a headache probably. Oh, God, yeah. You're poppy. I mean, it's it's, it's insane. Yeah. Oh, it was was really bad. I just, I tried to email my professor (laughs) that I wasn't going to be in class, and I sent the email to the wrong person. (laughs) <laughs> who thinks yeah, he replied to me it's a, it was a friend of mine it was the same last name replied and was like hey sorry you're having a bad day FYI pretty sure this wasn't supposed to go to me <laughs> your mind's not working as it should you're a wreck oh man no <laughs> you just cannot like 
I honestly think the worst feeling risk pipeline might be when you are absolutely plummeting. Oh yeah. That might be the like the worst I can't think of a, a more uncomfortable or when you're more useless. Like you can't it's much harder to push through that than it is like, oh I'm two fifty or I'm three hundred, like that's not ideal, but I can bullish and I can fake it. Right. That's when you're dropping that fast and that high, it's just that's not happening. Well, and it's pretty crazy too, again, going from the G5 to the G6 and the difference, like the time there, I think there's a five minute and a one minute, I don't know how, 90 seconds that it tests you. To see your blood sugar go from, let's just say 180 to 142 in a matter of 90 seconds or three minutes, it's like, holy crap. You know, like, if you didn't see those arrows, and I mean, it's just like, and when you feel bad, Mm-hmm. And you don't have a CGM, you know, and you can't bring all these things together, you know. Um, and it makes me think back and many times in my life where I was either really stressed or didn't get enough sleep and things like that. And I just was shuffling through life feeling like crap. And it's mm-hmm. absolutely because I didn't have any idea. Granted, I was testing my blood sugar, but I wasn't see. I didn't know the trends. And anyhow, yep. it's just... You know, it's my life mission that everybody with diabetes gets the opportunity to have a CGM, no matter which one it is, because there's like five different ones out right now, um, because it will make such a difference in the healthcare profession, period. I mean, it's... Yeah, they're just so... And it's kind of interesting to me how few physicians outside of diabetes care are familiar. Yeah. Like, just how few... <clears throat> like, so the, the surgery that I had, I had a, a rib taken out because it was blocking blood flow down into my arm, and then a shoulder surgery to repair the injury that had caused the first problem. So, in between all of this, I was seeing, you know, pulmonology, cardiology, mm. thoracic surgery, neurology, like the whole gambit. And nobody had any idea what a CGM was. That's crazy. Like, I thought it was my pump. And I was like, no, 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 that's a different thing. That's, these are different. They're different devices. When you went into surgery, did you wear your pump? Yeah, I wore my pump and my CGM. Wow. Who was monitoring you during that? I mean, did they know what to they do? Had, like, if you're yeah, they did. Like, they had me. Um, they had me like teach them about the CGM before. <laughs> And, like, they still, they said they did finger sticks, like, once every two hours to be safe. It's crazy. But, yeah, it was really nice. And then when I was in the, the ICU after the surgery, which is nothing had gone wrong, that's just where you need to be when you had 1.5 lungs collapse. Mm-hmm. And it was really nice to be able to just hand that to my partner and my parents were there and they know at least kind of how to run it. Because I was conscious, but pretty medicated. Right. And not super capable of communicating well. To be able to have that was so, so helpful. Because when you're in pain, your blood sugar gets really high. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let me ask you. um, Okay, so your partner, tell me about dating and diabetes. Dating and diabetes. So... I am very lucky that I have a really wonderful, supportive partner. I've kind of always operated under the under the philosophy that, like, look, I had nothing to do with the fact that I got this, so I'm not particularly ashamed of it. Right. It's just here. <laughs> if you don't like it, go away. <laughs> That's the best attitude to have. Yeah, like, I don't... It does, unfortunately, sometimes leave you feeling like your partner is a caretaker instead of your partner. Oh, yeah. And you, I really, like, it's tough for me to balance asking for the help that I need and not feeling like I'm expecting him to do too much. Right. And I'm putting that burden on him. That's mm-hmm. something that I'm still figuring out. But, I mean, he, like, instantly, like, because he and I were friends for a long time before we started dating. So they did actually our one-year anniversary. Oh, and, uh, congrats. 
Thank you. It's fun. I'm excited. We both have class until like 9 p.m., but <laughs> then we're going to celebrate. Um, but anyway, he already, from being pretty good friends, he already knew a little bit. Like, he understood the concept of, oh, you're low, you need food. Oh, you're high, you need insulin. But once we started dating, he got even more involved in in really asking a lot of questions and trying to help me figure out, you know, how do I do this? And he's just, he's wonderful. That's really nice to have a partner that's willing to get it and willing to put some time into getting it. Right. What and somebody to understand that, hey, when I say that I'm, you know, 500 or I'm, you know, 50, that they don't have to translate that. Right. it. And that's really nice because translating that when you're either of those numbers is actually <laughs> very challenging. Okay, well, let me ask you, did you set, and maybe not intentionally, but organically, boundaries? And, uh, you know, I know a lot of people, when I interview them, when they talk about their partners, um, it's like if you say, I think you're low, have you tested it? Or, you know, something like that, that there's, you know, it's, it's a negative. So do you have boundaries with him? A little bit. I definitely, like, the only times I ask him to do things for me on the diabetes front is when I can't. Right. For whatever reason, so like right after I had shoulder surgery, he helped me check my blood sugar because I I didn't have use of my left hand, and you like can't checking your blood sugar with one hand is not super possible, <laughs> right? Um, I, like I try really hard to not have him doing anything more than absolutely necessary, right? <laughs> okay, let me ask you this. Because, you know, like I said, I'm new to technology, period. And I was terrified, terrified to put on my sensor. Um, more just because it, with the G5, there's a lot of steps and it's, it's kind of overwhelming. And I always wore it on the back of my arm or the side of my arm. And um, so I would have Ryan or a friend help me through those steps until I had, I'm going to say, the courage. And I kind of had to have one of those come to Jesus moments with myself in the mirror, like, sister. You, this is ridiculous. You're depending on people, and you got to figure this out for yourself. So why I say that is during those times when you're sick and you were on your CGM, did anybody help you put on the sensor? Or did you put it somewhere? I mean, they had to have. Yeah. I had, uh, I've had Connor help me put it in a couple of times when I don't have use of one arm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but, yeah, and I've had my mom has helped me put in a few when I was younger, but also I think I'm, I'm lucky compared to a lot of type ones because a lot of type ones I know who are diagnosed young, younger, like mm-hmm. in elementary school, mom and dad take care of everything. And then they have, it's really difficult to learn to take care of yourself after it's been done for you. Yeah. And that's a really rocky, hard transition. I was two weeks from my 12th birthday when I was diagnosed. And already a little smart ass. <laughs> so my parents basically said, okay, we're going to learn it together, but this is on you. Right. We'll help you if you need it, but this is on you. And that was actually very helpful because I didn't have to do that transition of, well, now I'm in charge of bulleting. I was always in charge of bulleting. That's, yeah, that's... So how, going back to your diagnosis, I mean, I feel like everyone's story is, is fairly similar. So what, um, yeah, what was going on in your life that made your parents, so, you know, get checked? I think it was the weight loss. Because I was, I was never, never been a real big human being. But I went from like 65 pounds to I think 50. Mm-hmm. At 4 foot 11. <laughs> Um, and actually everybody thought I was bulimic because Ah. I was eating all the time, drinking all the time and spending a ton of time in the bathroom. Right. But I just kept losing weight. And And I guess at that age too, that's where, I mean, I have, you know, friends that were, that's when it really started. Yep. That's when most, most disordered eating behavior starts is that, that (laughs) preteen era. 
And finally, somebody believed me. And I got diagnosed. My blood sugar was like 580. Um, and then I had large ketones, but I wasn't in DKA. Thank goodness. That was like the cutoff, that I wasn't quite in DKA. Have you ever been in DKA? I have. Both times through... Um, neither time has been through operator error. One time was I got flu, I got gastroenteritis. Mm. That, that did it. And the other time, my insulin pump broke. Did and you know that it was broken? or was it I did not know that it was broken. Ah. It was really scary, actually, because it would show that it was delivering correctly. And there was a big old crack in it that wasn't super visible. That's, yeah, it's crazy as hell. Yeah, that, that's the two times. And neither time, thankfully, was a really bad, like, ICU admission DKA. Mm-hmm. Just like, a, oh, this sucks, and I feel terrible, and a couple days in the hospital DKA. Not, really, uh, not that I recall I've ever been in DKA. I mean, I think when I was diagnosed. But I, yeah, just hold on to that. It's a really unpleasant experience. I've got to, and I'm going to be the ignorant one. I'm okay with it. I need to research exactly. I know what it stands for, but, like, what is your body doing at that point and why it's so dangerous? Do you want the pre-med answer? Yeah, I forgot your pre-med, yes. What do you got? All right, so DK is diabetic ketoacidosis, and it is when your body has completely stopped burning energy from food, and it's just burning muscle at that point. <sighs> When you feel ketones, that's what's happening, is that your body is, is burning muscle and fat instead of the food that you're eating. When you get to the point of really large ketones, the overall pH of your blood starts to change. Oh, yeah. So alkalosis and acidosis refer to when pH changes. Mm. Human blood is normally 7.4. I'm pretty sure it's considered decay if you're under 7. And that can kill you. Yeah. Oh, DK can definitely kill you. If you're to the point that you're under seven and you're still not in a hospital, that's pretty rough. That's usually when things get pretty scary pretty fast. The phrase diabetic coma originates from DKA. Mm. So your kidneys can fail. You can get cerebral swelling, which is really crappy. It's literally the lining of your brain swelling. Um, so it's, it's not good. It's quite bad and a thing to be avoided. And really, so NDK is usually caused by like two kind of buckets of things. Mm-hmm. Bucket number one is other illness or other issue. Like some people go into DK after they're in a car accident or something, major major injury, major trauma, something that their body doesn't know what to do. Right. And then the other bucket is usually more not like very poorly controlled diabetes or even uh, something that I always thought can't, but always scared the crap out of me is what's referred to as diabulimia. Oh, yeah. Which is where folks with type 1 will intentionally reduce or completely stop taking insulin to run ketones because they'll lose weight. And it's incredibly dangerous. You know, I didn't even know that existed until about four or five years ago. And I met someone, a fellow advocate, um, and she shared with me, because we went and laid out at this conference, and talked about it, and I thought, holy, I mean, I was blown away mentally because I, A, I'm thankful I've never had an eating disorder, but B, you know, you just, I, you'd have to be in such a mindset to want to be that thin that you're killing yourself. Yep. Through your yeah. diabetes, which you're trying to stay alive from. Mm-hmm. So it's like this weird tool you've been given to fuel your Eating disorder. Yep. And there are so many people, and there was a big story I think was put out today by Beyond Type 1, you know, people's recovery stories, and thankfully they're sharing this because 
I'm sure, just like many things that, you know, we all share is, you know, you've got things that you're not proud of. But hopefully those stories will help somebody else realize this is not, and I'm not going to say good for you, but you're not alone and you're going to need help. And disordered eating is so common. And so disordered eating and eating disorders are, are slightly different. Disordered mm-hmm. eating is the pattern of behavior. Eating disorder is the dis- like the actual condition. Mm-hmm. Disordered eating is so, so common in type 1 because, one, most of us come up with the disease that people will tell us we got because of that. Because yeah. We eat. Number two, by nature, we have to be kind of obsessive about labels. Right. And counting what we eat. And mental health conditions are more common in people who grow up chronically ill anyway. It's crazy. Along those same lines, I have to say, and I'm not embarrassed to admit this, I'm in therapy right now. And one of the things that comes up that I never thought about, because I have always really, I'm uptight, period, because I'm so um, strict and hard on myself when it comes to my dietary choices. But that's a burden that I put on myself. And yep. she's, re- she's really bringing that out in me in that, um, and I posted this last night on Twitter, like one of my intentions for 2019 is just to kind of give myself a break. And so mm-hmm. this morning I ate an English muffin. And that sounds so simple, but not for this low-carb girl. Like that mm-hmm. was a real stretch. And so... I think it kind of goes into the diabetes and mental health, and you really do need yep. all the tools. And, man, I never would have – the problems that I was going to therapy for, I never pinpointed that diabetes was the root. Mm-hmm. And she – Was that a good piece of it, too? Yes. I mean, it's a major piece. And thankfully, she you know, told me later, and she's a friend of mine, that her son, who's older than I am, has type 1. And me sharing my story – with her, I think it's helped her better understand her relationship with her son. Um, it's crazy, the whole thing. Um, it was always yeah. it was super interesting for me because I was a dancer, and so mm-hmm. the expectation was that I would just be very thin. Right. So I just didn't eat a lot. I just ate very little, actually, just to be thin enough to continue dancing because thin enough was a type too. Right. And... It was so interesting to me when a friend of mine went into eating disorder treatment who's not type 1, and she would talk about all the things that they did for people who are trying to recover from anorexia, and it was all stuff I fundamentally couldn't do because it wouldn't work with the type 1. Oh. It was like, ah, don't, they, it would like block off all the nutrition labels and all the food in your house. <laughs> Well, that doesn't work. Don't count anything. Don't count calories or carbs or exchanges. Nothing. Don't count anything. Well, that doesn't work. Right. Didn't last a day. Right. Exactly. And it was just so interesting to me that all these things that are supposed to be how you get to a healthier relationship with food fundamentally don't work if you're a type 1. Right. Hate. You know, I was doing some, I did some research recently about, because I, I need to, I'd like to lose some weight. You know, I'm getting older, things are different. And I was looking at my caloric intake and did this ridiculous math equation. I'm sure, I'm hoping that I did it correctly. Pretty doubtful, but, um, and that was talking about my intake versus what I burn every day. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, not only do I have to count carbs and watch everything else, now I've got to think about how many freaking calories? Like, this is too much. <laughs> it's just a whole other layer. Do you count calories? Unfortunately, yes. It is a bad habit. I have not been able to fully break. Well, that's, I mean, you're saying that as a negative. Well, yeah, because I used to function on 800 calories a day, and that was just what I did. Right. So what do you, what is your, if you don't want me asking, um, what is your, what do you try to take in a day? It depends. I'm still kind of on pseudo no exercise because of the surgeries. Now I can work yeah. out like four days a week. So now I'm between like 
1400 and 2100 a day, depending on if I'm exercising or not. Right. right. That's a good stretch. I, like, yeah. I try very hard not to count calories because the moment I do, I want to not eat anything anymore. Right. But, like, it's, it is so complicated and so few, like, for the people that are listening, if you are a type 1 and you are trying to lose weight or gain weight or whatever, for the love of God, go find a dietitian and find one that can <laughs> type 1. <laughs> exactly. Because I had, I had one when I was in high school and truly had a problem with, like, 90 pounds and starving myself. And we would go through what I was eating, and she was like, I like all my diabetics eat like this. I clearly like, don't have a problem. This is fine. <laughs> when it was very clearly not fine. Right. <laughs> like, I'm oh. the other kind. <laughs> um, yeah. That would be my advice. Go find a dietitian that speaks type 1. <laughs> I think that, you know, in all areas of my life, I try, well, depending, I mean, obviously, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I try to have somebody that has, can, can relate. Even if it's a type 2, the fact that it's, you know, the word diabetes and it's not diabetes, um, you know, that, that's important to me. It's good. Let me ask you, um, too, in reading your little your bio, and I'm kind of say this jokingly, that uh, you're, you're minoring in power napping, and caffeine. Yes. I agree with both. And I get asked often what caffeine does to your blood sugar. So have you found a good way to not have your blood sugar spike when you drink good coffee? Being a little more aggressive with bowl of things? I am a challenge because I usually don't just chug coffee. I will drink it over a course of several hours. Right. So what I've learned is when I go get, and thankfully I don't really, I do get lattes. I, I really need to learn how to drink black coffee because it's so much cheaper. <laughs> but I drink lattes with like sugar for vanilla and skim milk. Okay. And what I've learned to do is like, okay, this venti this latte for a three-class, an eight-hour workday day, this thing is 32 carbs for the whole thing. So when I get it from Starbucks, I take out my pump and bowl it for 17 carbs. That's mm-hmm. half of it. And then I, you know, see how much of it I drink. And then if we get to, you know, two hours after that, if more of it's gone than half, and it's another, you know, bowl for seven or bowl for eight. That's because I've learned if I try to bowl it, if I bowl it for the whole thing, at the beginning of when I get it, I always end up low. Yeah. It's good that you figured that out. I mean, that's a, I'm not, I don't have a pump. And so me thinking about it like that is like, through that, I don't want to give two shots for one coffee. Right. right. So <laughs> I would run high, you know, until the end of my coffee and then shoot up and then probably eat something with it. But now I'm not giving that advice. I don't think that's the right thing to do, yada, whatever. But, um, yeah, the freedom that you have with that with a pump is it's pretty incredible. Any other foods I like that that I'm you... not. I need to need a pump. I don't always love being attached to it. But I I just know I am not responsible enough to be on top of it. I'm not because I'll, when I'm you know, I'm at work and I get going or I'm running from class to work to class. I might unintentionally go 10 hours without eating. Right. So if I'm doing shots and I don't take insulin for 10 hours, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of factors there for sure. There's a lot that goes into all this. So you're on the Medtronic now. Have you thought about any, because all, all these new pumps are coming out. Have you looked at any of the newest technology? I have a little bit. This one is what I've been on since I was 13. Obviously, they're the same pumps, but, like, the same physical pumps, but it's the same design. Um, I really, I like it. It works. It's good. I'm willing to look at stuff that will communicate with the Dexcom. Yeah. Because it's really stupid that they don't talk to each other. I know. Um, 
no no shade against Medtronic, but I I was the first kid at the at Blake Children's Endocrinology in Des Moines to try the Medtronic sensor when it first came out. Mm-hmm. The first generation, it was awful. That's what I've heard. I cannot put into words how bad it was to the point that I swore off using a sensor forever. <laughs> and my endo was like, begged me to try Dexcom. And she's like, it's a totally different company. It's not the same. You paid it after a day. I will never talk about it again. <laughs> and I tried Dexcom. I was like, oh, this is the opposite of that. It's pretty crazy. Uh, but I, I, I'm sure the Medtronic sensor is better than it once was, but I just, I don't, I never want to use one ever again. It was not that experience. <laughs> I think Ryan was on that too initially, and um, it, from what I understand, his experience was quite unpleasant as well. It, yeah, he kept the Medtronic pump; he just didn't do the sensor. Yeah, I love the, I love the pump, but it's not me and that sensor are just not going to be friends ever. <laughs> okay, well, considering you have such a public profile right now, and um, you know when you're in speaking engagements or conferences and things like that, like, can you give our listeners any tips or, you know, how do you, you know, who, who's there to help you? Because we kind of talked about, especially when you're on stage and um, receiving the CNN Heroes Award, like, who, you know, that's a lot of stress on your body, period. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what, no, our CEO, number is that? Our COO, so Chief Operating Officer, the number two at our company was holding my dad's Tom during Heroes. Um, and and we just, like, Tapped me on the shoulder when it was buzzing. Did you go um, high or low? Oh, I went high. I think I wasn't, it actually wasn't that bad. I've done just enough live TV and big formal award shows to know that I'm going to go high. Right. So I, I was at like a 150% bolt, uh, basal going into oh, it. Okay. Yeah, because I was like, this is what's going to happen. We know that I'm going to go high. So I think that was only like 250 or 260 during it. That's not bad. Yeah, which is like, I was like, great, wonderful. I'm going to take this. Okay, um, well, you just you're get used to it, too. Like, I'm I'm very strange in that public speaking doesn't scare me. Right. So I don't get the, the rush of adrenaline that through so many of us up. Do you get sweaty palms? No. Sweaty feet? No. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. It's just what I do. It's just part of my job. <laughs> there was something else I was going to ask you on that. Okay, random, just because I want to know, you've been around a lot of famous people, especially during that award. And when my sister saw the decks come on your arm, did anybody else comment or yeah, say anything uh, about it? Yeah, it was mostly people just being like, oh, sweet, that's dumb. Or like, oh, hey, is that a CGM? Um, yeah. I didn't, I'm trying to think. There, it was just people that were like, oh, oh, hey, and they would show me like, hey, I'm too being coming out of a suit jacket or something. Right. Um, but that, I mean, that was an intentional choice. I wore it on my, on my, on my arm on purpose. Where'd you hook it up? My pump was um, in my leg, so it was just in my spandex under the dress. <laughs> um, but like one of the things that has always kind of bothered me about a lot of stuff around type 1 is that I don't seem to encounter a lot of type 1s in the public sphere that are just chilling out being type 1s in the public sphere right <laughs> and I, I wore it on my, on my arm as just like this tiny little show of visibility. Right. Like, hey, you can have this disease and do really cool stuff and not have your entire life or your work defined by this thing. Right. There are people who find their calling and having type 1 and they do awesome work and I'm very grateful for them and all the advances they brought us. But if that's not you, that's also okay. You know, I got to and I appreciate you saying that like you did because someone sent me an article recently um, about a, a CEO here for one of our large nonprofits. And it's going through, you know, they had some basic questions and education, family, neighborhood, blah, blah, blah. And at the very bottom of it, it said, little known fact, 
And he put, he's a type 1 diabetic. He was diagnosed the week before his high school graduation. Oh, that sucks. It, uh, yeah, oh, God, yeah. Um, oh, you know, I mean, like, obviously, this is a very private thing for him. And he's a very well-known official here in, in our community. And I'm like, I'm going to interview him for sure. But, like, well, and I never talked about living with a disease until I, you know, meeting Ryan and whatever. Now it's like I'm loud and I'm proud. But um, I don't know. I, I can't imagine hiding something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, as technology changes and, um, I mean, I see diabetes on TV every day that people are becoming more aware of it and hopefully a little bit more, they show a little bit more compassion. Um, Hopefully, and I'm not going to hold my breath on this, the jokes will stop, but um, it's a little more funny. I mean, I'm not offended easily. but well, when you, people just aren't funny either. It's like if you're going to make a type one joke, be funny, right? Right. I yeah. Do wish, I do wish there was more like adult with type one representation, right? Because the perception is always so strange. Because people are always like, "Oh, I thought type one was for children." Right. It's like, yes. Are you aware we grow up? Most of us. Yeah, we don't like. This idea that, oh, you have adult onset diabetes or you're type 2 because you're an adult. Yeah, right. And they're like, what? And it's always frustrating because, like, it's these horrible comments. And I'm, like, a, I'm not a large human being. I'm, like, a size 2-4. And I'll encounter people who find out I'm diabetic, and they'll be like, oh, but you're, like, not that fat. <laughs> I'm like, cool, go die in hole. <laughs> like, just this, it's frustrating that the perception of type 1 is that it's only kids. Right. Well, and when I talk about it now and somebody says, you have, uh, uh, like, I have diabetes and I always say I have type 1 and they're like, oh, you've got the bad time. And I'm like, well, it depends on how you look at it. Right. I mean, I look at it as I've got the good one because I have medication that, for the most part, I can take and have a normal life. Type 2, mm-hmm. not everybody has that freedom. I mean, they've got a partially working pancreas and insulin resistance and all these other things. And it's just like, yeah, I just, my pancreas kicked the bucket and here's what we got to do. So I'm like, yeah, I don't know. diabetes, no matter how you look at it, isn't all that grand, but. Right. Like, I don't know if there's necessarily a bad or a good kind. It's kind of like, this sucks. <laughs> right. Well, as you were kind of saying your diabetes hasn't really defined you or, um, I'm going to say your future career path, but as you were just saying, it would be nice to see more adults on this front, and I think that this is a wonderful opportunity for you to be one of those people. Yeah, I mean, I've, I just wish that... Also, one other thing that I, I wanted to say is that I want the myth of the good diabetic to go die in a hole. Yeah. Because there's this concept of, like, oh, are you a good diabetic or a bad diabetic? I don't know. How's your day going? Like, <laughs> right. right. There's concepts that you can, like, unless you're anyone who's literally 14, you're <laughs> probably having better days than others. Maybe right. With the whole being 500-something this morning and then 58, I am probably not being a, quote, unquote, quote, unquote, good diabetic. But, like... What does that mean? And it also just this idea of having to be perfect all the time and do it right all the time. That's not possible. We're humans. Right. And I wish this concept of, oh, well, if you work hard enough, your blood sugars will always be good. Right? Okay. Sure. Like, that's dumb that if you, you know, that hard work will solve it all. It won't. And then I wish we were more forgiving of diabetics whose blood sugars aren't always in good of control for whatever reason. That doesn't mean that they deserve to have complications. Right, or to feel guilty. Right. And I think this is a great opportunity if parents or loved ones are listening to this. You know, we, I feel like as people with diabetes, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And oh, yeah. 
those numbers, I mean, just like I said, I didn't eat for two days and my blood sugar was 270. Um, so I think one of the, my life missions is not to be defined by a number. And yeah, I, I hope that the children and the, you know, the newly baptized will get that freedom or yeah. maybe we did. Like, do, do try, do do your best. Definitely don't throw your hands up in the air and say, screw it. That's not a good life choice. <laughs> right. But I think it gets so ingrained in you that if you don't want to go blind or you don't want to have your kidneys fail or you don't want to lose limbs, you have to have a six side A1C. Yeah. And that means perfect numbers all the time. And you can't have perfect numbers all the time because you're trying to be your own pancreas. So it's literally impossible. Right. And God knows there's so many other factors, just like we talked about. You want to drink right. a couple. You want to drink a latte, or go for a jog. I mean, some things just it, it, it's out of your control. Yeah. Well, I want to end with one thing that um, we kind of touched on, and I threw out something, and you, thankfully, this already exists. But when we talk about like the means database and how valuable it is, I thought with all of this conversation right now about people dying from not having access to their insulin. Because it's so um, expensive. Because it's so expensive, and I'm not going to go into the story, but some people just don't know that there are better insulins out there, so they're dying because they're seeing a GP in a rural community that doesn't know that the newest whatever insulin is out that could better manage their disease. And so you, you mentioned a database that does have um, worked with people that don't have what they need medically and then providers. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's not us. Right. But there is a really great organization called Serum that's basically us, but with prescription medications and making sure folks that can't afford or can't access their prescription meds are able to get them for free or at least at a very low cost. How do you spell that? I believe it is S-I-R-U-M, okay. I think. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes if I can find it. But, you know, that's just one of those things that, um, that just that people need to know about that. I don't care if it's diabetes supplies or if it's high blood pressure medication. Yeah. Access to it, period, for quality of life should be a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there I mean, insulin's just, we've got to come up with some way to make insulin more affordable. Looking at how much yeah. insulin is, the price has changed even in the past five years. This is a drug that was discovered and invented in, in the 1920s. <laughs> and the people who discovered it and found a way to produce it synthetically, they didn't patent it specifically so nobody could do this. Yeah. Like, I... I really, someday, I just want to hear some person in charge of pricing at, I don't care, whichever drug company, because they all did it, whatever drug company is making insulin, I just want them to explain to me why that's okay. Like, what they can tell themselves to justify that, because I think outside of the type 1 community, people don't understand that you can't take less insulin. Yeah. And that your insulin dosing is not really proportional to anything, that it's not your weight or your age. Like, I want three times as much insulin as one of my friends that weighs twice as much as I do, who's a type 1, and then I have a friend who is literally 90 pounds and an athlete, and she's on, like, 70 units of hemolog a day. Like, everybody is so different, and we can't just take less. The word ration and insulin do not. That, That doesn't work. That's not how this works. Yeah, there's a – I posted something recently on Facebook about this, and it might have been on my private – my personal page, and a friend, you know, chimed in like, Amber, what are you doing about this? Like, how are you going to help these people? And blah, 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 blah. I'm just like – and for somebody who doesn't have the disease, they don't understand this is a really big deal. Yeah, this is not – like. There's no such thing as, like, not taking your insulin for two days. 
that's not that's not possible, and it's not like we can do anything about how much insulin we're on or how much we need or needing it at all. Well, and how many people are stockpiling? And you know, there's so many things. I mean, this is a whole other podcast. We'll touch on it at some point. But um, you know, and just like when I was in San Antonio, Texas recently, and my insulin pin, my backup was busted or jacked up and totally malfunctioned. I put something on social media, thank goodness I have a platform, and I had people wanting to send me insulin from all over the country. We're going to send it overnight. Um, and I know not everybody has that resource. So when I hear somebody say or write about they didn't take insulin for two days and just went to sleep, man, that crushes me. You know? So, yeah, I uh, hope in my lifetime that I will see something change. Me too. I just, it's so, it's just like the EpiPen thing. It's completely unconscionable. Yeah. It's just, it's inhumane and it's cruel and it's evil, honestly. Because it's not like it's a new drug that you had to spend a ton of money on research and development to make. Yeah, transparency would make a lot of pharmaceutical companies' lives a lot easier. Yeah. Even if it's not something that people with diabetes want to hear, at least they would have something to be angry about. Yeah. Instead of just not knowing. And I will say, too, kind of on one other side rant, is that the advancements in technology are giving everybody a run for their money. So, you know, the artificial pancreas and all these other gadgets that are talking to each other and, and people overriding the systems. It's like, dude, we're not waiting for this crap. We've been promised a cure forever. So yeah, what's the phrase? Uh, there'll be a cure in 10 years with what people have been saying for 50 years. Oh, yeah. In three days, I'll celebrate 36 years of diabetes, and I've been promised a cure pretty much every five years. Yep, every time. Every like, time. Yeah, I was like, uh, I actually betting. Uh, there were all. I mean, I would bet against that. Maybe make some money. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Sad to tell to say. <laughs> well, Maria Rose, is there anything else you want to share before we get off the phone? Huh? No, other than just the general, if you know a food pantry or a soup kitchen or a shelter or an after-school program or some other sort of charitable endeavor that is feeding people in need in your community without charging them, they are totally welcome to use Means, which you can sign up for at meansdatabase.org. If you are someone who makes food in a professional capacity, so we can't take food donations for somebody who just, you know, made a potluck for themselves or their family. <laughs> if you're a caterer or a restaurant or you work at some sort of eatery and you want to donate your food to people in need on your schedule, you can do that through us, and it is totally free. So that is means, that is meansdatabase.org, M-E-A-N-S database. And I'll be sure that all these, um, all of your social media links and um, your website and everything will be listed in the show notes. And, and Maria Rose, thank you so much for doing everything that you're doing you know, diabetes community is blessed to have you, um, but you're, you're a trailblazer, and I guarantee I'm going to be hearing about you, and I'm going to be stalking you secretly, uh, making sure that you're doing what you need to do, and please keep me up to date because uh, there's no doubt you're going to be very successful in whatever you choose to do. We can hope. <laughs> You've got parents that don't, aren't going to, you know, in your praise, but they're going to be, you know, on the sidelines. you got to get support team. That's great. Well, Maria Rose, thank you. Best of luck with the rest of the semester, and thank you for taking time for this interview. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Wow, another fabulous episode is in the books. She is truly an inspiration to us all, and I feel confident she will continue to trailblaze her way through life and wow us with her passion to help others. Please help me share with the world the life-changing work the Means Database is providing for those in need. 
Her awards and social media links are included in the show notes, so don't forget to check them out at diabetesdailygrind.com. As I wrap up this episode, just a friendly reminder that I'll be en route to Scottsdale in early February and look forward to meeting my diet peeps while traveling the countryside. Don't forget to stay up to date on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't be shy. Shoot me a message if I'm cruising through your town. I am so excited to meet everyone. So cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. Little thing called diamond